Border Security Geeks. Man, it's the end of the year, 2016. It's December 29th and I'm hanging out. I'm somewhere south down uh, in the equatorial zone. Uh, no, I'm, I'm in Aruba, as you probably know. It is about 83 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a beautiful day down here. And there's nothing like the end of the year, is there? You're sort of sitting at that time, reflecting back on all the things you've accomplished this year and looking forward to uh, 2017 and all the things that are coming up. Uh, man, it's been a great year. So for this podcast, I've got about 48 minutes of content. It's some Q&A from folks across the social media land, the internet, Twitters, Facebook, all of that place. Asked for those questions, they came in, I went through and answered them. Hopefully there's some good stuff in here. Uh, but I cover things like, uh, what did I think about um, protecting the U.S. critical infrastructure? I talk a little bit and touch on uh, the hacking that uh, came from the election. And then some uh, social questions and some questions about mentoring and sort of what's up uh, next on my radar. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, check it out. It's uh, about 48 minutes long, as I said, and I think you'll really dig it. Uh, if you've got some questions that you want to have answered on future podcasts or you've got some folks that you'd like me to interview or you've got a great story to tell about InfoSec, uh, let me know and I will uh, get you on a future version of stateofsecurity.com podcast. All right, here you go, folks. Enjoy, and I hope you have a great 2017 and a happy holiday. See ya. This episode of the stateofsecurity.com podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Inc. MSI has been working for more than 20 years around mergers and acquisitions. We're capable of working in international and complex environments and we've done a variety of information security related services. Three specific areas around M&A are areas that we currently focus on for existing clients. The first one is pre-negotiation intelligence. So in this phase of the M&A lifecycle, we're using passive assessment, custom threat intelligence, and other sorts of profiling mechanisms. And what we're doing there is really looking at the prospects that organizations are considering for M&A activity and helping to identify any exposures of the intellectual property that those organizations have or their customer information or what their overall information security posture looks like. And those are pieces of uh, data that are used during the negotiation or to identify out of a group of uh, potential prospects what prospect you might want to approach or in what prioritized order. Once a deal's kind of been made, we often work in pre-integration assessments. So this is where the acquirer uh, looks at the information security program of the company that they just bought. And here you're going to see things like uh, traditional assessments, penetration testing, policy and process review, network segmentation, uh, egress filtering, a lot of security consulting here as we first assess the level of security at a given organization, and then really work with them to bring their security posture up so that they meet the overall policies and procedures and, and security posture that is required by the acquirer. And then once all that work is done, we typically work with organizations for a period of one to two years later on post-purchase threat intelligence. And this is doing things like deploying honeypots or monitoring for uh, outbreaks or other types of counterintelligence or intelligence operations. And a lot of organizations here are really just looking to identify whether they've got any disgruntled folks that came in during the acquisition, or maybe they've got uh, a poison pill kind of situation and they want to make sure that they don't leak any intellectual property uh, into this new environment or they identify any potential threat actors. So overall, uh, that's our M&A practice. We spend a lot of time working in M&A around the world. And for companies as large as the Fortune 10 and all the way down to smaller organizations uh, and the small business marketplace. So again, this uh, episode brought to you by Microsoft Inc. and our M&A practice. 
and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey there, passionate security possums. It's time for another StateOfSecurity.com podcast. I'm your host, Brent Houston. Man, it is the end of 2016. It has shot by. I just can't get over really how quickly uh, things have progressed. And as the usual here, at the end of the year, I try to put together a podcast. Uh, A couple of years ago, I did call-in messages. I asked some questions of different folks, and they called in, and I combined those together. Uh, This year, I did it a little differently. I went out and I asked on Twitter and Facebook and all of the sort of social media networks uh, all about what questions folks had that they would like to hear me talk about or what uh, topics they had that they'd like to hear me riff on a little bit. And so I'm going to put this session together. Now, that said, I am coming to you. It is December 29th, almost uh, the end of the year. And I'm pulling these questions together off paper. So if you hear a little bit of rustling in the background, uh, you'll kind of know what's going on. I hope 2016 has been a fantastic year for you. Uh, I know it certainly has been for me. It's been a very busy year for MSI and and for myself in general. Uh, And I'm putting this podcast together on a very beautiful sunny day. Uh, I'm in uh, Aruba. It's about 84 degrees Fahrenheit, and I'm sitting in my recording studio uh, pulling this stuff together. So our first question, let's just jump right in. Uh, Our first question today is from Loretta, and Loretta said there's a lot of information going out uh, on the news about protecting the U.S. cyber infrastructure, and she basically wants to know what we think of the idea of building a U.S. great firewall for the Internet, similar to China's approach. Now, this is an interesting sort of concept. Uh, China, of course, has the great firewall of China, uh, where they do a lot of heavy content filtering. They do uh, some some infrastructure protection there as well. Uh, But largely, uh, the great firewall of China, of course, is often demonized here in the West as being a control mechanism Uh, for controlling the flow of information into and out of China. Um, Now, this is sort of interesting. I'm not even sure that a great firewall uh, is is possible, uh, given the U.S. infrastructure. We have a pretty diverse set of of connections and and connectivity uh, to other parts of the world. And in fact, the Internet itself, of course, was designed to be a fully redundant communications mechanism uh, and not offer up single points of failure that would uh, be indicative of something like a deployment spot for a great firewall. Now, you could, of course, do uh, large sets of, of deployments of firewall devices and filtering devices in a distributed fashion, and, and uh, such an undertaking would certainly be huge and very complex. I'm not sure how much overall security that would really add. Um, The idea of being able to block all of that massive amount of content in anything close to real time is probably uh, pretty delicate. We don't really know enough about where assets are uh, to sort of just build uh, filters and protections for all of the sort of uh, critical infrastructure of the United States. The way that the Internet uh, was built and, and it kind of lays out is there are uh, those assets are scattered amongst other types of assets, whether that's home systems or uh, other commercial systems or, or organizations, uh, and they're all kind of mixed in together. So I'm not sure that the idea of being able to build a great firewall approach to protecting our critical infrastructure really works in the U.S. Um, There is also that hesitancy that even if we could build something like that, should we? Uh, Who will manage it? Who will control it? Uh, How will decisions be made to ensure that we don't use these tools and techniques in a way that violates our civil liberties or our rights to privacy uh, or any of the other constitutionally guaranteed uh, rights that you have? 
I think those are pretty big questions. And I think um, as we look over the history of internet blocking and sort of content filtering, uh, these things do tend to get out of hand. And I, I think that that's something that we should be very careful against and, and guarded against. Uh, the internet was certainly built for free and open communication, and I'm not sure that we want to uh, restrict it this way. Now, Loretta, I'm going to go ahead and assume that uh, your, your question also extends to how do we go about really protecting the U.S. critical infrastructure uh, beyond the idea of, of a great firewall? And I think here we've seen a lot of improvement over the last five years or so. Now, this isn't the thing that you read about. It doesn't sell papers. Us doing better uh, isn't really a a good media story to tell. So that's probably why you don't hear a lot of it. But there are strides being made and utility companies and banks and credit unions and all of the different critical services around the U.S., they are showing some improvement. Folks are paying more attention. We haven't totally solved the problem, of course, and there is still low-hanging fruit out there. But largely, across the board, organizations are starting to pay attention to these things. They're implementing better standards, better security postures. They're doing a better job of keeping things patched, monitored, and building secure products. So honestly, Things aren't as bad as the media probably whips them up to be around critical infrastructure. We do still have some work to do, but uh, definitely things are improving and getting better. So uh, thanks for your question. Uh, The next question comes from Darian. And Darian really wanted to know what my thoughts were on the hacking and U.S. election stuff that has been in the news lately and largely attributed to Russia. And this is a very complex subject, much more than we'll be able to dig into with just a simple answer. But I think having not seen any of the actual evidence beyond what's been presented in the media, um, not privy to any of that information, uh, I think when you have such a diverse group of folks coming out from the intelligence community, talking about their proof and and being forthcoming with the idea that uh, Russia tampered with the elections process, whether or not that was to influence a specific winner or simply to introduce or tamper with confidence in the election process. I think this is a great concern. If you go back in time to when I did some work around electronic and digital voting and the entire uh, Project Everest Uh, work we did. I think one of the things that came out of that was really that belief in the election process, that Americans having faith in the outcome of elections is a critical aspect of election technology. And I don't think that we can have that sort of faith knowing that those systems are vulnerable knowing that there clearly was tampering with the elections process, whether that was deeper than publishing of data or not uh, remains to be seen. I think this is a critical juncture. We're sitting at a time when technology is getting so integrated into our lives and we're able to use it in some very new and fascinating ways. The idea of being able to do real, truly authenticated and protected digital voting might not be that far off. It might be doable. But I don't think we can embrace that or we can move forward with it until we have a really good sense of of it being secure, of the, the controls being present to make election tampering obvious, And we have really good fallback processes for what's going to happen. I think part of that has to be strong authentication and authorization so that we don't end up with more than one person, one vote. And I think it also has to include things like being able to understand specifically how these voting processes and the underlying systems associated with it work. There's got to be peer review. There has to be open and transparent technology mechanisms involved. And I don't feel like we have that today. 
Uh, I certainly don't feel like that mechanism was in place during this this past election. I don't want to get into too much politics here, but I will say it is interesting that we've entered into a state now where the elections occurred, where, uh, as I said, this is December 29th, and the victor is about to be sworn in as president of the United States on January 20th. And even as that process is ramping forward, and I, I believe that it should ramp forward, we are left with this piece of doubt in our minds as to what role a foreign government played in the elections process. And for me as an American, this simply isn't okay. This has nothing to do with the outcome of the election itself. It really has to do with, can I believe in the integrity of the American election process? And I think that shadow of the doubt is large enough that we have to figure out in the next year to four years, how do we solve that problem? How do we create or harden the existing systems or how do we create new systems that can eliminate that level of doubt? Because I don't think that the integrity of any given free election should be questionable based on technology or based on the performance of a foreign power. And that includes the United States and potentially tampering with other countries' free elections. I don't think that uh, is acceptable either. So, uh, Darian, I hope that answers your question. I know it's probably not as deep as you wanted to hear, but I think that's where I'm going to leave that question sit. The next question comes from Jason, and he asks, uh, many folks are going to get new Internet of Things devices for Christmas. Many of these probably will be hacked in the first days after Christmas. What should people do? And so this is a great question. Uh, As I looked around my family under their uh, various Christmas trees this year, there were all kinds of IoT things. I saw folks get internet cameras and smartphones and smart light bulbs, and some people got household uh, hubs to make smart household stuff. A couple of folks I I saw even in my family got uh, smart appliances, whether that's a TV or a refrigerator or a washer and dryer. And I think these things are very much uh, need to be a focus of our life, and security around them needs to be a focus because they are such an integral part of our life. We're essentially putting these devices in our homes. They're in our everyday spaces. They are capable of interacting with our day-to-day devices, with, our, uh, with ourselves, with our children. Uh, they're capable of, in some cases, listening to conversations or giving an attacker a remote bird's-eye view uh, into your life. And I think these are things that are worth really considering uh, the privacy implications that they have over the long term. Now, that said, you get these devices, everybody wants to play with them. Uh, Everybody got them so they could accomplish a task. They didn't get them so that they could apply patches and have another thing to secure. But that's exactly what needs to happen. We've got to make sure that these devices are put into something like maybe a controlled network at home. So maybe this requires you Uh, building a standalone uh, wireless network and wired network where it's away from your computers and systems and and all it is for is for these IoT devices. I think that's a pretty good start. I think making sure that these devices are patched, their firmware is up to date, they're behind a firewall of some sort, even if that's just a stateful packet uh, inspection firewall like your cable modem or your DSL modem or one of these uh, consumer Wi-Fi devices. Uh, I think that's that's the very basic pieces that can happen um, and that should happen in every deployment. Now, we know that malware can be run on many of these devices. We know many of them are Linux-based. They're no more than just a new form factor for existing technologies. So we know that hacking can occur there. We know malware can run there. And I think we've got to take appropriate uh, precautions. Now, the problem is 
these are consumer devices and they're going to get deployed by consumers who largely don't know or don't care how to how to take care of them and and they are going to end up uh, just stuck on whatever the normal network is and and stuck right alongside computers and and other systems and so I think uh, as IT folks and as information security folks certainly we have a responsibility to talk to folks about that and and uh, make sure that they understand that it looks like a camera it looks like a refrigerator it looks like a washer or a coffee maker uh, but it's really a computer it's got a web server it's got a microphone it's got a network interface it's connecting to our Wi-Fi it's talking to some cloud application in the world and help them understand what the privacy and security requirements and implications are of these devices over the long term. So hopefully uh, you're out there talking to your relatives. I know I'm talking to mine about them and, and helping them make better decisions. Hopefully you're doing the same. And, and Jason, uh, that would be my advice to you uh, around this topic. So uh, a little lighthearted uh, question came from Bob. Uh, Bob simply asked, why? Um, I would here give my parents' response, which was because. So if you want to know why, I would say it's because. Noah. I, I think uh, what Bob was trying to get to here is that there are larger questions in the world. Uh, and a lot of times as security folks, we tend to get really myopic on uh, information security and and risk and privacy issues. Uh, and I do think Bob's point's well taken. Sometimes we have to back out and look at larger things that are going on in the world. I hope that 2016 has been a year when uh, you were able to move away from the echo chamber and sort of myopic view of uh, information security and take a longer look at things that are going on out there, machine learning and artificial intelligence and the ubiquity of networks and communications and some of these new IoT devices uh, and where IT transformation is, is going. Uh, I think it's really important that information security folks particularly back up and see the world at a larger view. I think it helps us do a better job. I think it helps us uh, look more at where crime and attackers are going. And I think it helps us uh, create more relevance for our points in the world. So, uh, Bob, thanks very much for asking why. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, uh, the answer to that and all of your other questions are in this podcast. But if not, uh, I would suggest you give uh, a try. Go to google.com, put in why, and see what uh, the Google can tell you about that. So, thanks for writing in, Bob. I really appreciate it. Uh, I got a request from uh, Alex Hutton to talk about what it is like to work with really great mentees. And this is a fantastic question. As, as some of you may know, I have a long-standing relationship with Alex and, of course, with many other folks who've worked at MSI and who have gone, to, uh, gone on to really promising IT and, and uh, of course, information security careers. Uh, I've had the pleasure now of, of leading MSI for 25 years. It'll be 25 years in November of uh, 2017. We celebrated our 24th year uh, anniversary just a few months ago. And I stepped back at that time and I thought about all of the folks that have worked at MSI and, and that I've had the, the pleasure of uh, working with through my own personal mentor program. Uh, I try to keep about a half dozen mentees at any given time and, and have for about the last 10 years. Really working with young folks or folks looking to move from one part of IT into information security or some other uh, career path into InfoSec. And over that time, as I, as I started adding these up and, and reviewing their names and, and counting them, uh, MSI alone has employed well over 60 folks. Uh, during that time, we've brought folks into uh, information security and we've created for sure some serious rock stars and, and contributors uh, to the information security world. I can't even, uh, and, and I would never do the uh, misjustice of, of naming them, uh, but I can't even tell you how thrilling it is to look back over that 25 year span and realize 
the the sorts of careers that uh, I've helped launch or or the folks that I've brought in and and their contributions and hopefully my contributions to the world and and to infosec working with these great mentees has been really the center of joy for my infosec career i've spent a lot of time working on crime i've looked at pen testing i've looked at risk I've learned a lot of things over the last 24 years and hopefully shared that with a lot of folks. But the core of it has really been working with great mentees and the joy of watching people make discoveries and watching them sharpen and hone their skill sets and then go out and bring that uh, to organizations and their customers and build careers or contribute to open source projects or larger projects uh, in, in Alex's case, I'm very proud of all the things that he's accomplished and his contributions across multiple projects and for multiple organizations and probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of end consumer customers. Uh, at the end of the day, that piece has been uh, just the centerpiece of my career. And I really thank all of the folks who have uh, worked at MSI, who have been mentees of mine, who have gone through my mentoring program, and their hard work, their dedication, their curiosity and need for discovery. It's just astounding, and uh, it certainly uh, is awe-inspiring, and it puts me in a place of humility every time. Um, If you're not working with either a mentor or you're not mentoring someone uh, or more than one person, you're really missing out on what uh, is the best part of InfoSec and careers. So please build your own mentor program. Take the things that you're good at and begin to teach others, young folks, folks looking to enter the career path from somewhere else or, or executives or, or anyone. Uh, just get involved with mentoring because it's really, really a fantastic thing. Uh, thank you, Alex, for the question. Uh, it was always a pleasure working with you, and it was a fantastic uh, honor to work with all the mentees uh, over the last 20-plus years. Mike writes in and asks, what will be the impacts of social media in 2017, and have we seen uh, the rise and, and sort of crescendo of social media? Uh, This is really interesting. I don't think we've seen the pinnacle of social media and and social media influence. I think we're going to continue to see that expand over the the next several years. Uh, I think you're going to see some changes in social media. Uh, Certainly, we've seen sort of a move away from simple text to deeper, richer, more engaging content. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, I think some of these really strong, trust-based social media sorts of networks are going to continue to grow. Uh, And I also think you're going to see more and more niche social media networks. I don't know if you'll ever get to the point where the Lasso-Opso community has their own social media network and you have to be vetted in and uh, you're only there when you're, as long as your vet uh, says you own and care for a Lasso-Opso But I do think uh, you're going to see more and more refinement and sort of uh, niche social media spaces uh, that are dedicated to really specific topics. And and that's going to be businesses and social topics. And who knows? Uh, Obviously, um, there are all of this sort of divergence of social media technologies now and integration of social media down to our everyday devices and wearables in our homes. And I think that piece is going to continue. I, I don't think that's a, a groundbreaking news there. So, Mike, I think more social media is coming. Uh, I don't think we've seen the end of it. And I think it's going to be more ingrained in our life and processes uh, than ever before. And I don't see that changing. Hope that answers your, your question. All right. Writing in over Facebook next is Jay. And Jay is asking, what are the lessons that I learned from making uh, Air Wasp this year? 
And so this is interesting. A couple of things. Give you a little background. Uh, this year, 2016, MSI launched a new product called Air Wasp. Uh, it's a part of our Honey Point suite. It, it runs on the Honey Point uh, Pi, Raspberry Pi platform. Uh, and it is used for doing distributed uh, monitoring of Wi-Fi access points and uh, doing in distributed inventory of Wi-Fi access points. Uh, so you're deploy a unit out there and it continually looks for new Wi-Fi access points and reports them back uh, to the Honeypoint console. Uh, and it gathers information about that Wi-Fi access point and only alerts you when there's a new Wi-Fi access point. And so it gives you sort of uh, distributed visibility into what the Wi-Fi footprint looks like of your organization uh, across, you know, highly diverse geography. And so a couple of use cases there, uh, we built the product for primarily initially for industrial control system use. Uh, folks wanted to drop these at different um, points in their industrial control system environment and look for uh, rogue access points or people trying to do access point duplication on smart grid devices or anything like that. So uh, we gave them tools to get that kind of visibility distributed. Since that time, though, other organizations have picked it up. Uh, for example, uh, we've had uh, we've had some retail organizations who have deployed these in stores, looking at footprints of different stores and point of sale locations. Again, they're looking for potential tampering or uh, you know somebody trying to do drop rogue devices into the space. We've had some folks start to use this for work at home uh, users. So if you've got a diverse uh, group of, of folks that are working from home, working remotely, uh, you've, you've got some folks dropping the Air Wasp and Honeypoint appliance uh, onto those home networks. Honeypoint, of course, looking for uh, malicious activity and scans and probes on the network and malware outbreaks, while Air Wasp is giving you that ongoing uh, validation and, and look for uh, masquerading attacks of where somebody uh, makes a Wi-Fi access point that looks just like or uses the same SSID as, as the one that the person's used to and they're trying to trick the uh, person into joining the wrong network. So you've got some distributed capability going on like that. Now, Jay, your question is, what lessons did I learn from making AirWasp? Well, the first thing I want to say is I didn't uh, actually make AirWasp personally. Uh, I did the design work on AirWasp back in 2011, and uh, I created a proof of concept then, but we didn't really bring it to market. We didn't add it into the Honeypoint suite. It was something that we always kind of joked about, played with, and uh, hoped to bring one day. And then Adam Hostetler, uh, who works with us, he actually revisited uh, that design document and that proof of concept. And he surprised me uh, one day, literally like, hey, I wrote this thing that you were talking about a long time ago. I think it's something that we could do. And here's a here's a new updated proof of concept for it. And uh, we, we then started working on it again. And, and eventually it turned into Air Wasp, which we brought to market. And so uh, I can't take all the credit. Uh, Adam Hostetler I did a lot of work. Jim Clune did a lot of work on it. And uh, all the MSI team, of course, uh, did work validating it and uh, testing the appliance and, and coming up with models. And then uh, there are some other folks out there who wish to remain uh, uh, anonymous who worked on the initial prototypes. Uh, they actually took them, uh, deployed them in their environments and helped us really test and roll out use cases and thank you very much for that. So, Jay, back to your question. What are the lessons we learned from making AirWasp? Well, a couple of things. Um, we learned that the market space in information security is still really crowded. But if you create things based on what customers are asking for, what customers need, the customers will support you and they will uh, help you build things, help you develop things, help you test things. And ultimately, when that product is ready and comes to market, by working transparently with customers, they will buy the product and the product will be a success. Uh, and so the second thing I've learned from AirWasp, 
uh, is that by consolidating air wasp and honey point onto the pie uh, and making these tiny literal uh, devices the size of, size of a deck of cards that could be dropped and deployed anywhere, um, that it works. It really, really works and it gives organizations great visibility uh, in an affordable way and it, it really uh, has been very successful. In fact, um, AirWasp is on its way if, if uh, the next couple of quarters go well. Uh, AirWasp will be the most successful HoneyPoint product uh, in HoneyPoint's history. Of course, that dates back to 2004 when it was first uh, came out as HoneyPoint Personal Edition in 2006. So 10 years ago, can you believe it? 10 years ago, 10 years of HoneyPoint, um, a decade of that, uh, it will be the most successful product all the way back to that uh, launch date. So Jay, a uh, couple of things there. Believe in your team because they can make things uh, that are amazing. And when you work together, you get more done. Work with customers. The more transparent you are with customers, uh, the more involved in uh, the product development they are, uh, the more they feel ownership, the more they're going to embrace the product and help with use cases. And um, then it, it really can work. You can build these things, take them out there and get visibility. Uh, it's been a pleasure making AirWasp. The other thing, the, the, the sort of last lesson I would say there, Jay, is uh, I was really surprised at just how many Wi-Fi access points there were, um, how overpopulated some of the areas where the drops have occurred, uh, where the product's been installed. Um, we've had a couple of places see well over 200 access points. Um, and we've, we have helped find uh, some Wi-Fi access attacks uh, based on access points and duplications and tampering. And I won't get too much into that other than because, again, I want to respect these people's privacy. Uh, but we have seen attacks with AirWasp. We've seen very suspicious uh, Wi-Fi access points come and go. We've seen uh, and identified it in distributed fashion what I would uh, take to be organized types of uh, Wi-Fi uh, duplication and um, social engineering attempts. So hopefully in another podcast uh, down, the, down the line, uh, I can talk more about that in deeper detail. But just know that uh, we are seeing uh, malicious activity. It's been very successful there. All right. A few more questions left here. We're about the 35-minute mark, but I'm uh, going to answer a couple of more. Uh, Larry wrote in and asked for advice to new InfoSec folks. Um, this is sort of interesting. I, I used to believe that InfoSec folks uh, who were coming over really needed to, to build a lab, pick one particular thing, whether that's uh, prevention or detection or response, and really get good at that one skill. And, and so really focus on being a great penetration tester or digging really deep in binary analysis or getting really super deep into packet uh, inspection and, and uh, detection. Now what I would say is uh, given today's environment and, and sort of where most information security programs are, I think if you were coming over uh, into InfoSec, a little bit wider vision is needed. And I, I, so I would say to them, look across the, the domains of information security. Instead of picking one to dig deep into, pick two or three and get pretty good. You don't have to be 100%, but get 80% uh, good at all three of those because that, that wider vision really pays off. And I think it makes a better security person. I would also add that uh, those of you who are looking to move into information security management, there needs to be a greater understanding of how to work within a bureaucracy. Um, I'm finding a lot of frustrated InfoSec people who are really good information security professionals. They're great practitioners, and now they're line managers. They've worked their way up, and, and now they're managing a security team. And across the board, the number one thing I'm hearing my mentees and my customers 
and my peers struggle with is working inside of large bureaucracies. How difficult it is to go from the hacker mindset of yield to the hands-on imperative, get things done, to working and solving problems inside of a large distributed uh, bureaucratic environment. And so I think we've got to step back and, and as information security people come in, uh, to the market, we've got to start preparing them. We need, they need to be engaged in all of the typical sort of management activities. They need to p- perhaps consider an MBA uh, level of study. They need to be looking at what it means uh, to communicate with diverse groups of people uh, who have diverse sets of talents and, and diverse uh, agendas and focus areas. And to be able to bring them all together to accomplish the the actual work of information security. Uh, And I think that's a significant task. It's something that uh, we need more of. And we as a community really have to start identifying strategies and tactics that allow us to accomplish work inside of these large bureaucracies, socializing them, refining them, optimizing them so that we can uh, make the most out of them, because I think these are, uh, these are a significant challenge for all of us, and we've, we've got to get better as an industry. So, uh, Larry, that's, that's my advice. If you're a new security person, pick three areas uh, in InfoSec and get 80% good at those as quickly as you can so that you bring wider vision and deeper talent, and then uh, get ready to manage inside of bureaucracies and really hone those skills uh, because you can't just be a security practitioner sitting in a cube anymore, uh, hammering away. It's really not effective. You have to work with the lines of business, work with management, and work with your teammates in order to secure an enterprise. So uh, let's see. Next, Stephanie writes in and she says, how will underground markets do in 2017? Um, of course, uh, I think underground markets aren't going away. I think they're going to continue to expand both in the types of coverage, that is the, the, the illicit uh, data and goods that are sold there, but also the user population. I think um, more folks are on tour, more folks are, are using underground networks, and I think uh, the ubiquity of Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies are, are driving new uh, opportunities in these marketplaces. So I don't look for them to shrink. Uh, I imagine you'll see law enforcement make a couple of key busts. Maybe they might uh, even shut down a couple of these marketplaces, but new ones will bounce up to take their place. I think you'll see that grow. The underground economy, from what I can see from my day-to-day observance, seems to be alive and strong. You're seeing the underground markets continue to thrive. Uh, You're seeing global economies uh, still receiving good amounts of of money flow into their population based on crime in certain areas. So I think this is still going to continue to grow. I think you're going to see more conversion of physical assets, uh, that is dollars and pesos and uh, bolivar and uh, rupees and and, uh, rubles that need to be, uh, and euros that need to be laundered, converted into uh, cryptocurrency and laundered through these markets uh, I think that's going to continue to be a significant focus and piece of the, the dark markets and the criminal underground. So uh, watch for some of that. If you're in banking right now, uh, you want to really be paying attention to ransomware and to the way that uh, some of these things are unfolding uh, and the way that uh, these cryptocurrency pieces are, are unfolding and you want to be really, I would assume, watchful of some of the, the case law that's being developed around uh, organizations who convert uh, these cryptocurrencies back to cash or convert cash to cryptocurrencies. Uh, you want to pay attention there. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in case law in that space right now. Uh, not an attorney. Don't play one on the Internet, but uh, that's just... My uh, feeling, Stephanie, I hope that addressed your question, and thanks for writing in. All right, got two more questions. Uh, Tom wants to know, what's next for Brent and MSI? Well, what's next 2017? We're going to grow AirWasp. We're going to continue to innovate in the nuanced detection uh, platforms. 
We're going to continue to add on to Honey Point. We've got some more tricks up our sleeves. We're going to turn the Honey Point Pie appliance uh, hopefully into a ubiquitous platform. Um, I'm really looking forward to 2017 to do more podcasting, to really uh, go out there, spend more time doing video and audio. Uh, I'm not doing so much of the, the speaker circuit now. I've, I've sort of gotten away from uh, presenting at conferences and, and doing a lot of travel. And instead, I'm trying to, to spend that time focused on research. And then that research, of course, turning into podcast material, blog posts, and uh, you know, video content and teaching content. So uh, that's really what's next for, for me and for MSI in a nutshell. Uh, we're just going to really continue to focus on doing deeper research and bringing out uh, more content in blogs and podcasts and videos and webinars and, and all that kind of stuff. So thanks, Tom. I hope you uh, join us. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I am going to say, I'm going to go on record and say that 2017 is going to be the year of the statussecurity.com podcast. I'm going to really focus on uh, doing more of it. You know, this year we kind of worked out some of the audio bugs and and hopefully that continues, but I'm getting this more down to a process and and hopefully you'll see more uh, podcasts more frequently uh, as well as more video content and, and more blog content based on the research. What else, Tom? In my personal life, uh, I'm doing a lot more reading. I'm doing a lot more deconstruction uh, work, tearing down concepts, and and uh, building frameworks for decision making. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. Of course, I own multiple businesses, and uh, a lot of my other businesses are uh, really starting to take up um, more of my time. They're getting. Uh, significantly interesting. Um, But I continue to work on MSI uh, and MSI is my day-to-day focus. Uh, And so I will, uh, I'll be around. I've got a few more uh, sort of product tricks up my sleeve for 2017, but I'm going to leave those for uh, future podcasts. All right. Last question. Another gentleman named Mike writes in and he asks, uh, what are some good book ideas? What are you reading? Um, I'm not reading so much information security books right now. Um, I get a lot of my information security stuff via my Tiger Tracks platform uh, and the sort of threat intelligence monitoring that uh, that platform performs for me. Um, So I'm not spending a lot of time reading security books. What have I been reading? Wow, uh, I've been reading a lot about stoicism. Uh, So going back and reading some of the classics written by Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, that stuff I've, I've found a lot of uh, good uses for uh, stoicism. I think it's really made me a better security practitioner, a uh, better entrepreneur, and I would like to believe a better person overall. Uh, it certainly uh, has impacted my life. This year, I, let's see, I've read a couple of really good books. Um, right now, I'm, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan. I'm reading Tools of Titans. Uh, I hope you and you are reading that as well and enjoying it. Uh, I went back and reread The 4-Hour Chef this year as well, so that took a little bit of time. Uh, I read a couple of Tony Robbins books. I read some really great fiction this year. I went back and uh, reread uh, Cryptonomicon, which is a fantastic piece of sci-fi, so go check that out, Cryptonomicon. I think you'll really, really dig that. There's some fascinating stuff in there, as well as some great historical sort of sci-fi fiction there. So uh, that's what I've been up to. Those are my book ideas. This has been this segment of the statussecurity.com podcast. As always, I really thank you for listening, and uh, I hope you found this segment interesting. Maybe I'll do another one of these uh, sort of write-in for questions uh, down the road. So if you can think of questions, things that you'd like us to talk about on the podcast or interviews you'd like to see me conduct, uh, go ahead and reach out to me. Uh, I am at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N, that's L-B Houston, on the Twitters. Uh, You can also find me on other social media, or you can uh, email me at bhouston at microsolved, S-O-L-V-E-D dot com. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. I hope you had a really great 2016 And I hope you have a really joyful, peaceful, and successful 2017. Uh, As always, thanks for listening to the podcast. And uh, thanks for all you do for the community. 
And thanks for being an in information security or, or just listening. Thanks so much for all the love and trust over the years. I look forward to 2017, more podcasting, more stuff coming up. Until next time, stay safe out there. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft Inc., specifically our Machine Truth product. Machine Truth is MSI's new mechanism for doing offline asset discovery, configuration analysis, security analysis, network mapping, and even application level analytics. For more information about some of the offerings that Machine Truth empowers, please check out machinetruth.net. You can also find more details by talking to your Microsoft Inc. representative or asking more questions of at Microsoft on Twitter. All right. Well, we're almost out of here. Thanks very much for listening. If you made it this far, I hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, I had a good time answering the questions, and I really appreciate all the folks who wrote in. And uh, I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or if you've got questions that you'd like to have in future upcoming episodes. Or again, if you've got a great story to tell, you want to uh, talk a little bit about your information security experience or you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or you know somebody else who I should be talking to and interviewing, uh, let us know. But as always, thanks for listening to the stateofsecurity.com podcast. Check out the blog at stateofsecurity.com. Check out our sponsors and the services that they provide. And as always, until next time, stay safe out there.